0: Hello, and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden, the instruction manual that helps you put together the bookshelf of Swedish history. I'm Elsa.
1: And I am Chris, and we are beginning episode 56, in which we're going to be talking about the horrible pandemic that engulfed Sweden and the rest of Europe in the mid-1300s. We are, of course, talking about the Black Death. Sometimes simply known as the plague. And in Swedish, it's known as digerdörden.
0: Which means the great or the complete death. Diger is an old Swedish word meaning complete, uh, extensive or all-encompassing. Which is really what this disease was. But speaking of Swedish words, what's our Swedish phrase of the week?
1: This week's phrase is har hecken full. And I'm a bit confused about this because uh, hecken is a hedge, right?
0: It is, but in some parts of Sweden it's also a slang word for but, as in you're behind. And
1: so the phrase literally translates as have the hedge full, but then I guess it can also mean butt full.
0: <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. We're a very decent podcast though, so uh, we won't go further into exploring that meaning. I actually did go further into exploring the origin of the phrase, and according to Nordiska Museet's website, it actually doesn't have anything to do with neither hedges nor butts. (laughs) Nordiska Museet, by the way, is a museum here in Stockholm that is, as the name suggests, dedicated to the history of life and people in the Nordics. The hic in this phrase refers to a kind of trough or manger uh, where you keep food for animals. So actually, the correct translation of the phrase would be to have the trough full.
1: Okay, that makes a lot more sense. In Swedish, the meaning of har full means you're busy or to be busy.
0: Exactly. You could say, for example, I can't come to the pub tonight because I've got and full at work
1: and uh, maybe we could say we've had heckenful with researching and writing this episode and the recent episodes so we should probably get going as this one's going to be a long interesting and complicated one we're going to cover the arrival of the black death in norway and sweden and its immediate general effects on society the economy and way of life We'll return to the general chronological narrative next time to see the more political effects of the plague, and how it impacts the development of Swedish history at a more high level, and how it wrecks havoc with King Magnus's plans for his country.
0: Let's start with some definitions. Like we said at the start, this disease, and especially the outbreak that spread across Europe, the Middle East and parts of Asia in the 1300s, is known by several names, but we will stick to calling it the Black Death.
1: It's sometimes called the plague, but it would be more accurate to call it a plague, because that's what it was, just a plague disease, one of many that have occurred throughout history. The one that occurred in the mid-1300s was not the first and not the last. Listeners might be familiar with the Plague of Justinian, for example, a major outbreak of plague in the 540s named for the Roman Emperor at the time. Perhaps Magnus in Sweden is lucky that the Black Death isn't known as the Plague of Magnus in (laughs) Swedish. Uh, That would be bad timing for him. After arriving in the mid-1300s, the plague continued to hit Sweden in on and off waves until the beginning of the 1700s. It affected the rest of the world for even longer than that, and in fact there have been many more outbreaks similar to the Black Death, including some as recently as 1967 in Nepal, but these later ones have been uh, much more smaller scale than the 1300s version.
0: There has been some debate among historians whether the Black Death actually was a plague or not because it wasn't until two studies in 2010 and 2011 respectively that scientists were able to isolate and determine what had actually caused the Black Death. This was done by analysing DNA and protein residues from skeletons known to have been buried in mass graves following the outbreaks of the Black Death in London. So thanks to those analyses, we know for sure that the Black Death was caused by a bacteria called Yersinia pestis. We also know from research in 2013 that the Black Death of the 1300s was the same bacterium responsible for the plague of Justinian, so it's just coming back recurrently after a break.
1: Well, all this talk of bacteria makes the Black Death different, also on a medical level from a widespread illness we've all become very familiar with in recent years, COVID-19. COVID 19 is a virus, whereas, like we just said, Black Death is caused by a bacteria like all other plagues. That's the difference between a plague and other diseases.
0: In the case of the Black Death, the disease usually manifests itself in one of two forms bubonic plague, which is when painful boils are formed, uh, typically around the lymph nodes, so usually in the groin or the armpit of a person. The other kind, pneumonic plague, that infects the lungs. The bubonic plague, bildpist in Swedish, is the more known one, and that's why you sometimes hear bubonic plague as a byword for the black death or for all plague.
1: We're not going to go into too much detail of the biology, epidemiology and general medical aspect of the Black Death here. If you want to learn more about that side of things, there are a ton of good books in most, probably every language, and documentaries and all sorts of things that you can dive into if you want. But just to understand why this became such a horrific, all-encompassing pandemic in Europe and Asia in the 1300s, it's worth saying just a few words about how it spread and what happened when you got infected. Like we said, it's caused by bacteria. That bacteria infected fleas and sometimes lice, which either then infected humans directly when biting them or infected rodents like rats. And from there, the flea or the lice used the rodent like a taxi service to get close to a human and bite the human.
0: Right, taxi! Rat taxi.
1: Yeah, hailing a rat taxi. And in the case of the pneumonic plague, the disease can then also spread from human to human in the same way that COVID that we're so familiar with now does by coughing and breathing it in from an infected person.
0: Again, there are different kinds of plague. Sometimes you also see septicemic plague being mentioned as a third kind. That is when the infection goes to the blood All of these, there are variations on the same theme. They're all different presentations of the same disease. And they're the Black Death at this point. They're just a bit different. Again, think COVID variants. Bubonic plague, with these horrible painful boils, have historically had a mortality rate of between 50 and 80% of the people infected. For the pneumonic plague, the mortality rate was almost 100%, meaning that if you got it, you were essentially guaranteed to die. Grim. You were also even more likely to infect others because of its ability to spread person to person via the air. Getting either of these, especially during the Black Death, was awful, and I mean awful. Really supremely horrible.
1: Getting sick during the 1300s outbreak of the Black Death must have been an incredibly painful experience. You've got a high fever, incredible headache. If you've got the bubonic kind, you have these horrible boils. And with the pneumonic kind, you coughed your lungs out. The disease also looks and apparently smelled awful. The septicemic plague where the blood is attacked can cause entire body parts to go black. Uh,
0: Considering this... It is perhaps almost a relief that you weren't sick for very long. During the Black Death, most people who got sick died within three to five days, but it wasn't unusual to die sooner. So that's a very short incubation time. You'd think that that might be a good thing because it reduces the chances of spreading it. Uh, If you get sick that fast, well then you're not out and about spreading it to people unknowingly because you're not aware that you're sick. Whilst this has been the case in some later outbreaks of the plague, it sadly didn't have a dampening effect on the Black Death. As we'll see later, in the mid-1300s, there really wasn't much to stop the ravaging of this disease.
1: Indeed, because what did you do when you did get sick? Whilst the field of medicine developed substantially during the Middle Ages, it wasn't enough to really tackle something like the Black Death. Especially up here in Sweden and in Northern Europe in general, there just weren't enough medically educated people or even educated people in that sense at all. When the Black Death hit Sweden, our first university is still more than 100 years away. Medicine and healthcare was practised at monasteries and convents, and whilst there had been an almost exponential increase of those, that wasn't nearly enough to cover the needs of all the people.
0: So what people did do was to try and avoid getting sick. And because those who were sick often had very visual signs of illness, like boils or parts of the body turning black... It was obvious to avoid them, and isolate them as best you could. This had the tragic side effect for the people who were already sick, that since people didn't want to come near them, they were sometimes left alone with no one to care and comfort them.
1: Again, as we discussed when we talked about medicine and illness in general in this time period, people also widely turned to religion in Sweden. Prayers to the Holy Ghost, the Virgin Mary, and St. John were common. It was also common to try and stop the disease or force it away by arranging processions or other outward displays of religion. More folkloric expressions in ways of trying to stop the plague were also common, both in what is modern-day Sweden and Finland. From Finland, there is, for example, a chant preserved, sadly not documented at the time, but written down in 1564, that consists of 26 stanzas. These chants were used to exorcise the plague from a person or area, it was probably the best way to describe it. But when it comes down to it, there was very little to do once the disease struck. Some people were, of course, able to avoid it, especially wealthier people who could just leave an affected town or village and had enough supplies to go and wait it out in the forest or in their castle. And whilst the mortality rate was huge, as we'll see in much more detail later, some people could get it and survive. But it came at an incredible personal and societal cost.
0: Side note, by the way, today, or, well, since the mid-20th century, we can cure people who get infected with the plague, and that's thanks to antibiotics, since it's a bacteria-borne disease. And I've just listened to an episode of Medicine Vetana, a popular science medical podcast in Swedish. And that episode was all about antibiotic resistance. So I'm thinking about how important it is to address antibiotic resistance so in the future we don't land right back where we were and have no effective cure against something like the Black Death. But moving on from what it is and what people try to do about it, how did it get here in the first place? And I don't mean the disease as such. Like we said, that comes from bacteria, But how did the Black Death get to Sweden in the mid-1300s?
1: Pointing out the origin of the Black Death has been a popular activity for historians of generations gone by, it seems. And there's often a fair amount of xenophobia involved in what they concluded. Basically, it's common to point a finger at the dirty heathens in the faraway land when it comes to answering the question, who brought the plague to my area of the world? The truth is that we don't know. estimations range from Central Asia, Mongolia, China, India, Southeast Asia, like anywhere over there, basically.
0: That's like a third of the world's surface that it could potentially have started in. What we can conclude, though, is that the Black Death spreads thanks to trade and trade networks. The mid-1300s might seem like a time that's far, far away, but the world was interconnected, and just how interconnected it was becomes very noticeable when we look at how the Black Death spreads.
1: Yeah, all those lovely trade networks we've talked about in all of our many previous episodes from Hansa and the Bronze Age, people were travelling around a lot.
0: Yeah, so from its unknown origin, it moves westwards, much like how trade moved from east to west. We know of unusually high death rates as early as 1338-1339 in areas of modern-day Kyrgyzstan, And we know from Persian sources that a plague hit northwest Iran and Azerbaijan in 1346, 1347, and so on. thanks to scattered documents from across Central Asia and the Middle East, we see how it moves westwards.
1: By 1348, it has reached the shores of the Mediterranean via areas in modern-day Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, and Syria. And from here, the spread is basically amplified because now it can travel by sea, which is the fastest mode of transportation in this time period. Infected fleas, lice and rodents get into all the produce and goods that are being transported all around the Mediterranean by ship, and within two years there are outbreaks all across Europe. Another route that the spread of the disease took was via the Crimean Peninsula and across the Black Sea and reached the Mediterranean via northern Greece and Turkey and this could explain early outbreaks in places like Sicily and in busy ports like Genoa.
0: The Black Death arrived in Sweden around 1350 and arrived in Norway probably the year before. It came via two routes which in turn were interconnected from the south via Denmark and Skåne, and from the west via Norway. But since Norway and Sweden were a joint kingdom under the rule of King Magnus at the time, let's look at Norway and the spread from there in particular. The long Norwegian coastline was a hub for trade and shipping, coming from the British Isles, which had been hit by the Black Death already in the summer of 1348, but also from the rest of Europe and from inland areas of Norway and Sweden out to the rest of the world. The trade was Norway's source of wealth, almost its raison d'être. Many parts of Norway isn't very fertile, but because of the rich and well-established trade, farmers and fishermen could subsist there because they could sell what they had, which was often fish, and buy what they needed, like other food items. But this also made Norway incredibly susceptible to the Black Death. It came via ships arriving to Bergen from the British Isles, for example, uh, or ships arriving to the Oslo Fjord from the south, and from there just had this... Trade network highway to spread.
1: Historian James Bruthen, in his article Population Decline and the Plague in Late Medieval Norway, mentions how the plague would have likely spread around the country. This is quite a long quote, but it's very good. The movement of individuals infected with the plague, or those carrying infected fleas, present a clear danger to any community they contact. The potential for infection, however, could be significantly offset by the actions taken by any community faced with the disease, the character of its social and economic interactions, the geography of any region as it relates to potential contact, and any local environmental or climate conditions acting as inhibitors to the spread of the disease. Holmes, for example, has argued that the plague had its greatest effect on the lower elevation farms, where population densities were higher and contact along trade routes strongest. This would imply some natural isolation, affording a lower incidence with distance from the main farms. This would imply some natural isolation affording a lower incidence with distance from the main farms geography certainly played a role in the diffusion of the disease. Holmeson further contends that fishing villages were more susceptible due to their greater contact with towns. Interior rural communities were however more isolated. Within mountain communities, the outlying farms were often some distance away and greatly isolated from many of the more centrally located farms. Their contact with the lower elevation farms along the trade routes was limited by the work cycles. Contact would be associated with economic and social needs that are associated with seasonal work cycles and cultural habits.
0: So some people who lived in mountain areas or more inland would have avoided the spread of the plague quite easily when it first arrived. They would normally only head to where the plague was for seasonal work and trade plus the odd cultural event. Otherwise they didn't meet those people who had the plague in their day-to-day life so they were safer. Of course, this wouldn't protect them forever, but it's interesting to see the difference in who got the plague first and who got it a bit later.
1: And once it got there, it spread like wildfire. A century later, in the 1400s, the population of Norway was less than half of what it had been a century earlier. Unfortunately, we don't have an exact population count to rely on, but we know that there were roughly 60,000 households in Norway around the year 1300. In 1520, there were between 23 and 24,000, so that's a decrease of more than half. Of course many Norwegians succumbed to the plague itself, it's estimated that within a few months between a third and a half of the population perished. But there was also widespread destruction in general, because again, all of those people, especially in northern Norway, couldn't survive on subsistence farming, but were dependent on trade. Well, then they couldn't trade because the Black Death had disrupted the trade network and emptied it of people. Well, uh, that meant they were then starved.
0: The Black Death also knocked out many of Norway's civil and church leaders. Only one out of the five bishops there were in Norway survived the plague. Such a blow to the country's leadership led to almost a collapse of it as a state. To put it bluntly, there was almost not enough people left to keep Norway going as a country. Norwegian traders that had been the backbone of the country could no longer withstand competition from Germany and the Hanseatic League, who, after 1350, essentially took over control of the trade on the Norwegian coast.
1: To give just a hint of how bad the Black Death was for Norway, listen to this next quote from James Bruthen. The Black Death is one of the singularly most important events in the development of late medieval Norway. The subsequent decline in the population after 1350 is viewed as a major contributing factor to the nation's loss of political and economic status within Northern Europe. Population decline in the two centuries following 1350 is estimated to be as much as two-thirds of the pre-plague level.
0: Yeah, that kind of population decline can only be called a significant historical event. But now we'll move on from Norway and into Sweden, Or actually, let's stop off in the middle, in an area that was then Norway but is now Sweden, the county of Jämtland. It's located about halfway up the map of modern-day Sweden and to the west, so it shares that mountainous border with Norway. Jämtland was hit hard by the Black Death, In the higher-lying, more mountainous areas, around half of the farms were desolate, indicating that the population had either died or left to try and make a life for themselves elsewhere. In low-lying, more fertile farm areas, around 30-40% to of the farms were left desolate.
1: This is a pattern we see repeated across Sweden during the Black Death, that the less fertile and poor areas were hit even harder but even in areas that had the best preconditions, the disease swept away large chunks of the population. Up until the mid-1300s, the population had increased so much that people had to move further out and into areas that were not previously settled because they were less suitable for farming, but now people had to move to these places because there was nowhere else left. The Black Death caused this process to reverse. As people died and their farms and houses were left desolate, those who had survived could take up residence in the more favourable places if they'd previously moved to further afield. In general, if we look at Sweden as a whole, we see how the areas that were settled last were also those that were abandoned first. It's also like a wave on the shore. When lots of people or water come in, the wave that reached furthest retracts first. Or as my dad used to say all the time about him being in the Navy, the engineers are on first and off last.
0: Speaking of waves, that's also a pretty good description of how the Black Death affects Sweden. It happens in waves or phases. It doesn't happen everywhere at once. Like we said, we see the first cases appearing in 1350, although it's impossible to know when the first case occurred, but we see it hitting the south and west of the country first. It's equally impossible to say which areas were hit hardest. Some sources indicate that the disease east somewhat the further east and north it got but that could equally also depend on the fact that there are fewer sources from the north of Sweden and modern day Finland because the state authorities were as we know weaker there so maybe they didn't have fewer cases they just had fewer means to write it down and communicate it to the rest of the world.
1: There are legends and tales from all over Sweden that go along the lines of only one person survived in this Socken, or the entire population of this Socken could all fit standing on this one rock. Socken being that administrative unit that's smaller than a county and sometimes just one village and the area surrounding it, which is usually translated to parish in English. And then there are stories that go along the lines of there was one surviving woman in this Socken and she saw smoke coming from a house in the neighbouring Socken and went over there and it turns out that one man had survived there too and thanks to that they repopulated the area. Which is a very disastrous history style uh, story. While these tales and folk legends are obviously not facts, uh, although they might have been on very few occasions, they give an indication that some areas were hit harder than others. But it's impossible to establish any real pattern to this, because overall the Black Death was so all-encompassing and generally bad that it just became a case of was your area hit incredibly hard or slightly less incredibly hard.
0: The same can be said for groups of people. The disease did not discriminate, it hit everybody. Obviously, if you were poor, you were more likely to be malnourished and more susceptible to illness. That was true then, and it's true today. But the fleas and the lice and the rodents that spread the disease were common everywhere in the mid-1300s, both among rich and poor. Actually, one group of relatively well-off people were hit particularly hard. We notice in records of the nobility and the estates that they owned that the poorer among the nobility were not able to weather the storm, so to say, when the Black Death hit and when they themselves got sick. But more importantly, when the laborers that worked their land got sick and disappeared, they could not stand the loss of income that it led to and had to sell off their properties and consequently lose their status among the nobility. In turn, the richer among the nobility, who owned more land and could subsume the shockwaves of the losses due to the disease better... Well, they were able to hoover up the land that their poorer fellows had lost and thus became even richer.
1: Yes, that's a depressingly common theme throughout history, I think. Mm. And there were, of course, reactions to this incredible tragedy all across society. It doesn't just happen and nobody talks about it. And we thought we'd look at the reaction of possibly the two most prominent Swedes of this time, King Magnus and our religious icon, Birgitta, that outspoken and well-known church figure pilgrimage taker and advisor to queen blanche
0: yes and we'll dedicate an entire episode to her sometime in the not too distant future so for now just remember that she is influential and outspoken because of her religious life and status in society
1: Magnus's reaction to the plague hitting his country, or countries, remember, since he's king of and Norway too, is made famous thanks to a letter he sends in 1349 from his residence at Lødøsa to the bishopric in Linköping. So why don't you read out the first few lines of this lovely letter, also?
0: <laughs> yes, it is in medieval Swedish, which, as we know by now, is a bit odd for a modern Swedish speaker. Uh, but this is how King Magnus begins his letter. Magnus, med Guds nåde, konung, Sveriges, Norges och Skåne, sände allom klärkom och lekmanom, sedelis hurarium in Linköpings biskopsdöme, hälsom mitt gudi. And translated to <laughs> modern English, that would be... Magnus, with the grace of God, king of Sweden, Norway and Skåne, hereby sends all clergy and laymen, seated here in Linköping's bishopric, greetings with God. So that's a very fancy opening to his letter. This letter is also the first contemporary evidence we have of the Black Death having hit Norway and Western Sweden, because Magnus is writing to Linköping, which is located further east, to warn them about the terrible disease. He writes about how the disease kills otherwise healthy people and destroys all life in its path.
1: And this is also a great example of how he calls himself king of Sweden, Norway and Skorner, and that Skorner wasn't just sucked into Mm. uh, Sweden at this point. The good king has also some helpful advice, could we say, to the people of Linköping for what they should do to protect themselves and alleviate the effects of this disease. All the people across the kingdom of Sweden, both clergy and laymen, old and young, men and women, shall go barefoot to their Paris church every Friday.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's solid advice.
1: No shoes Friday, dress down Friday.
0: (laughs) No shoes Friday, and we'll be rid of the Black Death. I don't need to worry about antibiotic resistance anymore, because it can all be fixed by going barefoot to church, according to King Magnus.
1: Well, the king doesn't just stop there though. The letter goes on to say that everyone should listen to the church service humbly and in the fear of God, which I assume is kind of what they do normally, then give alms according to their ability, giving donations to charity, which again I think is also standard practice, only eat water and bread on Fridays, confess their sins, and last but not least, everyone in Sweden should give one coin to their local church. The money should be taken to the cathedrals and the king and council will decide what to do with it to honour God and the Virgin Mary. I wonder what Magnus wants to do with all that money. And uh, why people should do all of this is to appease God and lessen his anger, obviously. It was the wrath of God that had brought this disease on the people. Whether or not Magnus believed this himself is obviously debatable. If we want to be a bit cynical, we could suggest that this collection might not exactly be to help the church or the kingdom fight the plague. As we've seen in the past few episodes, Magnus is always desperate for cash. So this could be great cover-up to raise yet another tax in Sweden, and this time from every single person in the country.
0: Handy, for sure. So, who knows? Birgitta and the church are convinced that the disease is punishment from God. In fact, pretty much anyone in Sweden at this time is convinced that it's a punishment from God. But Begitta has her own ideas about why God is so angry with people. Because she's had a vision, spoiler alert, she has quite a few, in which the virgin mary has spoken to her and said for three sins sake the plague has come to the kingdom haughtiness excess and desire for profit begitta then goes on to say that the disease will go away If women start wearing more modest clothes, if people give more alms, and if the parish priests, once a month, sings a mass in honor to the Holy Trinity. I'm I'm sorry to be sarcastic and angry here, but I just find it amazing how everything bad that happens in the world, ever, can somehow be blamed on women and our bodies, and no I'm not bitter at all.
1: No, and what clothes you wear and um, haughtiness in general. How can she actually believe that? It's pretty mad. Also has her angry face on for listeners.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I really wish that there was a visual podcast because I can in no way comment on this other than with my facial expression.
1: Ah, oh, there's sun behind Orsa, so I can't really take a good picture. Um, but imagine a angry picture of Orsa going on the social media right now. It's important to say that it's easy to laugh and mock the reactions of people like King Magnus and Birgitta, and obviously none of this helped, but it's really what they believed at the time. So, um, yeah, we just have to put up with it and accept that that was what they thought. And like we said, obviously none of this helped because is a bacteria disease that's spreading, not some mystical divine judgment. And the king himself sort of admitted that nothing is working in a letter to Pope Clements VI a year or so later, when he says he's struggling in a campaign in the East because the Black Death has decimated his kingdom and left him with not enough men to fight with. But religion was such a fundamental part of life and society in Sweden that we must assume that at least some of the people living at the time thought that this really was an act of God.
0: This belief and Christian fundamentalism in general across Europe at the time would have incredibly appalling consequences for the Jewish population. In countries across Europe, the Black Death was seen as a Jewish conspiracy or a Jewish plot to kill Christians, and in turn, Jews were prosecuted and murdered in the most horrendous way. Now, the Nordic countries essentially had no Jewish population in the Middle Ages, but that didn't mean that people still didn't find a way to blame them for what happened here. On Gotland which lost nearly three quarters of its original population to the Black Death and in the decades thereafter, they had been warned early on about the plague thanks to their close connections to Germany through trade and the German population in Visby. A letter from the town council of Lübeck to Duke Otto of Lüneburg, that's all down in Germany, says that on Gotland they have captured a man called Tidercius who had poisoned wells in German towns, the poison being believed to be what caused everyone to be sick. He supposedly got the poison from two Jews called Aaron and Moshe, according to the Lübeck Council, but now he's been captured and burned alive on Gotland, according to this letter.
1: We don't know if this burning alive actually happened, but there is proof of several similar things happening across the European continent, so it's by no means inconceivable. Another example of acts being carried out as a warped reaction to the Black Death is found in a tale from Linnereid in the county of Smorland. Here, two orphan children, a boy and a girl, came walking into the village one day begging for food. The villagers gave them a piece of bread, but at the same time also lured them into a pit that had hastily been dug and began filling it back in after they uh, entered the pit.
0: They buried these two kids alive?
1: Yep, they were buried alive. We don't know if this one example is true or not, but we do have examples of children, adults and animals being buried alive from all over the Nordic countries and Europe during the Black Death. There was a popular belief in the idea of embodying the disease in the shape of someone or something, often a lone wanderer or beggars, often a child, and someone who walked around spreading the disease. And then the logical solution in uh, huge quotation marks is to get rid of that embodiment. It's a similar sort of logic that's used in uh, ritual offerings and ritual killings. And in a way, it sort of maybe helped because people did spread the Black Death, but burying them and killing them is a bit extreme. Just saying, putting up a sign saying, don't come to our town would probably be a better solution.
0: I mean, in times of extreme crisis, there's also an element of, almost losing touch with reality, uh, I suppose. But it is truly macabre, like so many things are when you talk about the Black Death.
1: And speaking of macabre, the Black Death gave rise to a new art form, I guess you could call it, depicting death and illness. In Sweden, we see it primarily in murals and paintings in churches, where death is depicted as a skeleton interacting with humans. In the Church of the Holy Cross in Ronneby, in the county of Blekinge, there's a mural of skeletons dancing with humans. This image of death dancing with people in a long sort of conga line is common throughout Europe and is interpreted as a way of symbolising the sweeping away of people by illness and death. The mural in Runnaby was actually painted during a later plague outbreak in the 1500s, so it goes to show how ingrained that imagery became in society.
0: Another common image is death, again symbolised by a skeleton, playing chess with a person. Uh, An imagery invoking ideas of the gamble of life and death, the thin line between the two, good luck or bad, one well preserved such image can be found in Teby Church, not too far from where we live actually, uh, in northern Stockholm. In fact, that image of death playing chess is invoked in a scene in the movie The Seventh Seal from 1957 by famous Swedish writer and director Ingmar Bergman, uh, perhaps Sweden's most famous movie director internationally. The seventh seal is set during the Black Death, and there is a famous scene in which a knight played by Max von Sudov, who by the way was also the priest in the Exorcist, uh, the knight he plays chess with death. Uh, it's uh, I'm not a huge Bergman fan, but uh, that scene is so incredibly quotable.
1: Does it say like checkmate death?
0: Well, they're on a beach on Gotland actually, and it's from well, 1957. all of his films were on Gotland, right? Many of them were filmed on Gotland, yeah. And they're on a beach, it's like a pebbly beach, and death comes up to Max von Sydow's knight, and he says Jag är döden. I'm death. How du you för att hämta mig? Have you come to collect me? If you search The Seventh Seal on YouTube, you can watch just that scene. It's It has the best suspense of, I think, any movie scene ever. Then you don't have to watch the rest of the film because it's pretty dull.
1: And it's in Swedish, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm just guessing. He might have done international films.
0: His films were international, for sure. They influenced people like I know uh, that, but they, Woody Woody were, but they and...
1: were in Swedish, all of them.
0: Yeah, but you know of that thing that comes up at the bottom of films that has letters, <laughs> yeah. you know? I know? It's not very famous in the English-speaking world, but there is such a thing called subtitles that helps you Shut watch up. films that are made Shut not up. in English. And stop throwing pillows at me, Chris. <laughs> Keep, just keep reading the script about the Black Death.
1: Well, many historians argue that these depictions of death might have stemmed from the fact that people lived closer to death, so to say. They witnessed much more death around them, especially during something like the Black Death, than many of us do today, and consequently needed a way to deal with it. And just like we do today, art became one of those ways to deal with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose you can compare it to how... All the stand-up comedians today are doing routines about COVID-19. Medieval Swedes painted death as skeletons. It, it's all a way to get through the day through expressions in art.
1: Yes, and um, widespread death was, of course, the main effect of the Black Death. And you look at that as almost coming from two strands of it. There's the individual effect of illness and death, the loss of life, the loss of loved ones, the loss of income if the main breadwinners of a household died, and the poverty that comes from that for individuals and families. That was of course an extensive and tragic consequence of the Black Death. Then there's the overall societal effect of the widespread death. We saw earlier how King Magnus writes in his letter to the Pope that he doesn't have enough good men left when he wants to go and fight in the East. That's just one example. It's very difficult to know for sure because there's a lack of accurate census data, but it's not inconceivable that up to a third or even a half of the population died. And there are also huge variations between areas, meaning that some hard-hit areas could have lost up to 80% of its population. And just like on a personal level, that decimation of the population leads to poverty on a regional and state level because there are fewer people working the land, selling goods, paying taxes, and in other ways contributing to the state finances. A very visible effect of this is that there are very few large building projects from the decades during and just after the Black Death. Like churches and cathedrals, for example, the vast majority were built either before or after the latter half of the 14th century. After the Black Death, there simply wasn't money or people around to engage in large-scale projects like that.
0: Indeed, and Lars Ersgaard has looked into this building change in his piece called Change, Desertion and Survival, an Archaeology of the Late Medieval Crisis. One good quote from this is In the town of Örebrü, desertion of settlement took place in the late Middle Ages. In the town of Lund, an area in the northern outskirts where craft buildings were located in the high Middle Ages, was abandoned after the year 1350 and was not resettled until the 16th century. In the town of Linköping, the impact of the crisis was discernible, not as desertion, but as an almost total stop of construction works during the first decades after 1350. All construction works ceased in the settlement. And so did the works at the cathedral in the town. Not until the first decades of the 15th century they were resumed. In the cathedral of Uppsala... No stop of construction works can be observed during the latter part of the 14th century. However, the walls of the southern parts of the nave, which were erected during this period, show a more deficient craftsmanship than earlier walls.
1: And he continues by saying, In the building works of the 15th century, a higher quality of masonry is visible anew. These qualitative differences have been explained by a lack of qualified masons caused by the general decrease of the population at the end of the 14th century. The decades following the year 1350 meant an almost immediate cessation of building activities in churches, the same pattern that was seen in the towns being repeated in the countryside. This observation is supported by the dendrochronological dates from the provinces of Osterjotland and Smallland. End long quote. So this is really interesting. You can see that these building projects almost completely stop, and when they are able to continue decades later, the qualified masons and architects have clearly been killed off, as the quality isn't as good as before the Black Death.
0: Moreover, it wasn't just like this happened for a period and then things went back. Some estimates say that between 1350 and 1420, Sweden's population decreased by as much as 60%. Because it's not just the people who die who lower the numbers of the population, but since they've died, they're not going to have children. So the population isn't replenished, so to say. It is going to take almost three centuries for Sweden's population to return to pre-Black Death levels. Now, that's also due to periods of starvation, war, and so on that happened later, but it's an indication of how destructive the disease was when it lowered the population level to such a point.
1: Yeah, that's huge, and obviously there are some wars and things. But in the wars that we've seen up till now, we're talking about a few thousand or hundred people dying. It's not like World War One, where a million people in Sweden are killed in one war. So it, yeah, it, the fact that it takes three centuries to return to the levels of 1348 is is a, is amazing. Really, yeah. this really shows you the scale of death.
0: One thing that wasn't affected as much through Sweden was royal and noble power. In fact, castle building peaks in the decades directly after the Black Death, sort of after 1350 and 1351. The second half of the 1300s is the extreme peak of castle building in all of medieval Sweden.
1: A lot of these are located centrally, such as Pixboy in smallland, and the castles take on urban functions, such as being trade centres and taking control of administration. Magnus Stabeus, among other historians like Lars Erskord, suggests that this is because the king and the nobles are using these castles to gain a stronger control over the taxes and other urban functions that used to be run from towns. There are now less people to control and less people in these towns, and so it's important to actually get the taxes out of the people who are left, as revenues are going to be massively falling in this period. These new urban fortresses are actually a more efficient solution than simply repopulating the towns quite slowly. And you can see this with the quite obvious decline of some nearby towns, such as Skara, which lose their urban functions in the time of the crisis and immediately after because they're being replaced by these castles that sort of suck up all the functions that the previous towns were doing and that can also explain why the big building projects are taking so long to be built because obviously the nobles and the kings are taking all the masons and the good builders left around to build their castles instead of building the churches and big things in the towns
0: Yeah, this really is affecting the very fabric of society We've already talked about how the Black Death led to changes in the landscape around Sweden, as farms were left uninhabited and settlements retracted from less favorable areas back to the core areas of the country where it was most favorable to live. And most favorable to live in medieval Sweden didn't mean where the best schools were or if it had a nice view it meant where the land was best for farming and this change in where settlements were and what the landscape looked like remained for a very long time
1: The population decrease and the move away from certain areas also meant that the bottom went out of the property market, so to speak, in a modern expression. Demand was gone, quite literally, and the supply was so great, it definitely fulfilled all the interest and had plenty more to spare.
0: We are fortunate to have records of property transactions in the county of Jämtland dating back to the 13th and 14th hundreds, And in those, we can track the collapse of the market. In 1346, so before the Black Death reached Sweden and Norway, half of a farm called Berge was sold for 90 marks. 30 years later, in 1376, so once the Black Death had swept across the nation, the whole farm of Kasta sold for 30 marks. And it continued to go down from there around the year 1400. Grytland farm sold for 21 marks. And there are indications that half the farm Gotland was offered out to be sold for as little as 8 marks in 1418. So that's gone from half a farm selling for 90 marks to half a farm selling for 8 marks. Yeah, that is really a property collapse if there ever was one.
1: Yeah, it's a really steep downhill trajectory. Having gone down and down and down, I guess we probably hit the bottom of this market in about fourteen eighteen. But we've also hit the end of this episode. <laughs> uh, nice segue there. Yeah. As we've seen, we decided to cover the Black Death in one go and in one episode to give you the more general effects of it. But like we said at the start, this wasn't just one plague that happened at one time. The Black Death was a plague outbreak in Europe, roughly 1346 to 1353, and it hit Sweden at the latter stages of that from 1349 onwards. It was not the plague outbreak in history. Plagues continued to hit Sweden after this, and the effects of both the Black Death and subsequent plagues were, as we've seen, extensive in people's lives and for Sweden as a whole.
0: Indeed, we decided to cover the Black Death all in one episode, partly because we felt it made logistical sense, almost, in our timeline. Because... Times got quite messy after the Black Death, or perhaps we should say messier than they already been, as Drensel et al. write in the chapter Living Conditions in Times of Plague in the book Environment, Society and the Black Death. The plague obviously caused death and suffering, broken families and abandoned farms. In addition to these direct effects, there were societal effects in the wake of the plague that added to the misery. Increased oppression and plundering by the landowning elite resulted in peasant resistance and revolts, and much of the late 14th century was characterized by social unrest and conflicts.
1: Politically, royally and socially, we're going to be heading into some unruly waters. But more on that next time, of course. We'll keep mentioning the fallout of the plague as we go, including how it ends up affecting Magnus's plans for more military adventures, his bank balance and the general way that he's going to start running his three kingdoms after this disaster. And we'll see all of this next time. The fallout isn't over just yet.
0: It definitely isn't. But as always, thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook. Just search A Flat Pack History of Sweden. Or we're on Twitter at FlatPackSweden.
1: Yes, or you can send us an email, Sweden at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com there's uh no new messages at the moment to read out i don't think but we've had lots of new people uh joining the facebook page and twitter after our appearances on rex factor and a life in the land of ice and snow so if you're one of those new people by the time you've got up to episode 56 hello thank you for joining us a few uh months or weeks or whenever ago
0: or they, you could have done what I did when I started to listen to Rex Factor. I started with the first, the newest episode, and went back.
1: Yeah, yeah, but that would be a bit weird with this with this podcast, though.
0: Well, if that is what you've done, and this is the very first episode of Flat Pack History Sweden that you've listened to. Hello and welcome.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I can see why people would listen to the most recent episode, but then go back to the first one. But it would be weird to go 56, 55, 54, 53, 52, 51 when this is a chronological history of Sweden.
0: Dear listeners, you are welcome to listen to the episodes however you like. Don't listen to Chris's absurdly logical way of always approaching things.
1: Right, um, Will, I think we'll leave it there and say goodbye for now. Goodbye. Hey, door.